royal family, past and present, seem to be everywhere, from the silver screen to our television screens, and from stages in the West End to Broadway and beyond. Have you ever thought about how those depictions come to be and what influence they might have on us as an audience? In the cold, dark months of January, some of us watch a little more TV than usual. And what better to watch than history? Historic stories on television movies are some of my favorite things. And discussing them is another favorite. I was chatting with my friend and wonderful creative director, Lindsay Lindstrom, about this, and she suggested... I share some thoughts about my favorite monarchs on stage and screen. I'm actually not going to spend much time with Tudor movies because Susanna Lipscomb in her terrific podcast, Not Just the Tudors, did a fabulous episode on Tudor films in Tudor box set binge. One of the films Susanna mentioned was the 1933 classic, The Private Life of Henry VIII, starring Charles Lawton. Lawton created an unforgettable version of the king, leaning way into that famous Holbein portrait, hands on hips, legs astride, and adding characteristics like gnawing on giant turkey legs that he then threw over his shoulder, something Henry himself never would have done. But that image somehow stuck in the public imagination. Henry's reputation is often exaggerated as well. When Henry VIII appeared as a mascot at the Major League Baseball game played in London a few years ago, the American broadcaster said something like, oh, he's the one who had eight or ten wives, chopped off most of their heads. Now, it's certainly true that Henry had more wives than any other monarch, but it wasn't eight or ten. And it is pretty stunning that he had two of them beheaded, but there was a lot more to him than that. As a real person, Henry VIII was complicated. He felt like everyone else in the country. He needed a son to succeed him. He didn't exactly go about it the right way, but the succession was his responsibility. He was concerned about royal magnificence. He built palaces, he collected tapestries, and he attracted some of the finest artists in Europe to his court. He founded the Royal Navy. And although the origins of the Church of England date to the influence of the Roman Catholic Church in the second century, the official formation and identity identity of the Church of England are associated with Henry VIII. So it's complicated. But thanks to some of the representations of Henry on film, our view of him can end up a bit skewed. This brings me to the question Lindsay and I came up with. Are our our views of historic figures shaped by their representation in pop culture, or are their representations in pop culture based on how we view historic figures. Let's look at a few examples. You already know that Lion in Winter is one of my favorite movies, and it includes one of my favorite royal depictions, Catherine Hepburn as Eleanor of Aquitaine. Although she's an American actress, Catherine Hepburn gives a powerful portrayal of the early English queen. And I know I'm not the only one who has a mental image of Catherine Hepburn when thinking of Eleanor. In the famous Ken website, 
Eleanor of Aquitaine is identified as the 23rd great-grandmother of Catherine Hepburn through a variety of nobles, royals, and eventually Olive Welby, who was born in the United States in the 17th century. Then it trickles down through a bunch of other generations until we come to Catherine. I'm not sure about this claim, but it is interesting. And relative or not, Catherine Hepburn's spirit and confidence really convinced me that she's the perfect representation of Eleanor. In fact, and here's something that's really embarrassing for me to admit, my connection between Eleanor of Aquitaine and Catherine Hepburn was so strong that in high school, I wrote an essay about Eleanor and called her, quote, Queen Catherine several times. I didn't even realize this until the essay was returned, and I suddenly saw my embarrassing mistakes. I also noticed the fact that the teacher had somehow overlooked those mistakes. Maybe she was as much of a fan as I was. So sometimes a great performance can shape our perception of a historic figure, and sometimes it works the other way. I think a great great example of this is with King George III. Now, I want you to know I love all of those of you who are listening those from America and listeners from the UK and all over the world. I do think my American listeners will particularly relate to this bit. In American history, George III is definitely the bad guy when it comes to the Revolutionary War. In fact, the Declaration of Independence contains 27 grievances against King George. It's as if he is held personally responsible for everything that's upsetting the colonial leaders like all the laws were made by him personally, which, of course, was not the case. The monarchy had actually been losing power since the Glorious Revolution in 1688 and the signing of the Bill of Rights in 1689. Parliament was getting more powerful all the time. George III's two predecessors were largely disinterested in England, which allowed Parliament to solidify its powers. And speaking of George I and George II, they were not great kings, and neither was George IV. In fact, of all the Georges, George III was by far the most effective monarch. But that didn't fit in the American version of the War of Independence against the tyrannical King George III. So, what happens when our American understanding of George III is based on a, mer- on a narrative that gives America its reason for being? How does that version of George III show up in pop culture? Let's talk about another of my favorites, one of my all-time favorite plays, Hamilton. I know it's a worldwide phenomenon, but think back. Originally, it was a play created by Americans for Americans, and it includes this fantastic representation of George III. Now, I've been fortunate enough to see Hamilton on stage twice. And both times, the audience exploded with laughter and applause every single time George III appeared on stage. He is absolutely one of our favorite characters of the show. But he's a caricature of the king with no real connection to history. Now, here's one of the places it's really clear, these brilliant lyrics that George III sings. I will not sing, but read them to you. You'll be back like before. I will fight the fight and win the war for your love, for your praise, and I'll love you till my dying days. 
When you're gone, I'll go mad. So don't throw away this thing we had. Because when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. Brilliant. And really encapsulates the American version of George III. That character is wonderfully ridiculous, demanding, tyrannical, funny, eventually literally mad as in crazy, and is responsible for the war. He's sending the troops. And I think that comes from the overall version Americans have of George III. Lin-Manuel Miranda turned that version into a brilliant and hilarious character, a foil for all those courageous founding fathers. And that representation was in part shaped by what we've been taught about the American Revolution. Now, let's move forward just a little bit from George III to Queen Victoria, another long-serving monarch who shows up frequently on screen. Victoria's reign stretched far and wide. She reigned from the early 19th century, coming to the throne in 1819, clear into the 20th century, dying in 1901. She oversaw the expansion of the British Empire and was eventually named Empress of India. And she married her children and grandchildren all over the world. By the end of her life, she was literally known as the Grandmother of Europe and the Queen of Europe. In addition, there were game-changing events all over the world during her reign, including the Napoleonic Wars, the political upheavals throughout Europe known as the Revolutions of 1848, the abolition of slavery and the American Civil War, the decline of the Ottoman Empire, colonialism, the Industrial Revolution, and life-changing inventions in communication, medicine, and transportation. So life around the whole world changed dramatically during the reign of Queen Victoria. So it makes sense. She would show up regularly on the screen. Now, how is Victoria portrayed on the screen? Let's look at a few more of my favorites. We'll start with the beginning of the reign. We have a couple of really great examples. The film Young Victoria from 2009 and Victoria, the masterpiece television series that premiered in the UK in 2016 and in the US in 2017. The third series of Victoria was shown in 2019, and I have to say it's not completely clear whether or not there will be another season. But in any case... For these two productions, they focus on the early life of Queen Victoria and the women chosen to play the part of the queen and the men chosen to play the part of Prince Albert are very British. In Young Victoria, the queen is played by Emily Blunt, who was born and grew up in England. Her early roles and successes were at the Edinburgh Festival, West End Productions, and on the BBC. She won acclaim and several British awards before becoming known in America, especially after her brilliant role as as Emily in The Devil Wears Prada. Likewise, her Prince Albert, Rupert Friend, was born in Oxfordshire in England. He trained at the Weber Douglas Academy of Dramatic Arts in London and was nominated for Most Promising Newcomer at the British Independent Film Awards. And you might have seen him as Mr. Wickham in the 2005 production of Pride and Prejudice, starring Kira Knightley. Now, let's turn to the BBC Masterpiece production. Victoria is played by Jenna Coleman, also born in England. 
She was nominated for a BAFTA, which is British Academy of Film and Television Arts Award for Doctor Who. She recently performed at the Old Vic Theatre in London. Her Prince Albert is played by Tom Hughes, born in England once again. His performing experience started in high school and the Liverpool Everyman Youth Theatre. He graduated from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London. And here's a bit of trivia. In 2010, he was voted the 10th most eligible bachelor in Britain by Company Magazine. So what do all these fine actors have in common? They're British. Well, yeah, they're playing the British Queen and her Prince Consort after all, right? But the thing is, the actual Victoria and Albert were not exactly British. They were mostly German. Victoria is the final monarch from the House of Hanover, a German royal house whose monarchs were imported, literally imported into England after the death of Queen Anne in 1714. From that point until Victoria came to the throne in 1837, the kings of Britain were also electors and dukes and then kings of Hanover. As women were bared from the Hanoverian throne at the time, when Victoria came to the throne of Great Britain, her uncle, the Duke of Cumberland, took the throne of Hanover. Victoria's father, the Duke of Kent, was the fourth son of our old friend George III, who was also a Hanoverian rather than British, something that feeds into his representations on stage and screen as well. Victoria's mother was Princess Victoire of saxe coburg saalfeld born in the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. Victoire's first husband was Charles, Prince of Leiningen. They had two children, Karl and Theodora. After the death of her first husband, she was regent during the minority of Karl. The death of Princess Charlotte, daughter of George IV and heir to the throne, brought a succession crisis in Britain. Prince Edward, the Duke of Kent and brother of the king, decided to leave his longtime mistress and get married in hopes that his legitimate child could become heir to the throne. He married Princess Victoire on the 29th of May, 1818. They moved to Germany. When the Duchess became pregnant, they hurried to England so their child could be born there. On the 24th of May, 1819, the Duchess gave birth to Alexandrina Victoria in Kensington Palace. Prince Albert was born in Saxe-Coburg-Saalfeld in Germany. His parents were Ernst III, Duke of Saxe-Coburg-Saalfeld, and Louise of Saxe-Gotha-Alteburg bit of trivia, records indicate that both Albert and Victoria, who were born in the same year, a few months apart, shared the same midwife. Albert had an older brother, Ernst. His parents' marriage was not a happy one, and after the divorce, his mother was exiled from court. When he grew up, Albert attended the University of Bonn. Albert and Victoria were cousins, and their ambitious uncle Leopold promoted the idea of their marriage. Victoria's mother, Victoire, was sister of Albert's father, Ernst, and Leopold. As young Victoria moved closer to the throne, Leopold arranged for Victoria and Albert to meet. Victoria was considering several possible husbands, especially once she came to the throne on the 20th of June, 1837. As she was an unmarried young woman, her elderly male counsel thought she should hurry up and get married. 
Initially, she resisted attempts to rush her. When Albert visited for the second time in 1839, the two fell in love, supposedly, and decided to marry. They were married the 10th of February, 1840. The wedding of the queen and her consort was celebrated in grand style. A London journal described the national sentiment as, quote, We are going stark, staring mad. Nothing is heard or thought but doves and cupids, triumphal arches and whip favors, and last but not least, variegated lamps and general illuminations, end quote. Previous royal weddings had been small private ceremonies, but this wedding changed the mold. Victoria wanted the people in London to share the day with her. She decided the bridal procession should be seen by the public as she traveled to St. James's Palace. She invited more guests than had ever attended a royal wedding in the past. Instead of robes of state, Victoria decided to wear a white dress so she would stand out and be seen by all those guests, starting a lasting tradition that is still observed the world over. It's easy to see why this event would be irresistible for television and movies, and they certainly made the most of it. Elaborate sets, gorgeous costumes, fabulous lighting, magical moments. The perfect marriage for the perfect royal couple, queen and consort, future of Britain, played by British actors. Except, of course, the real queen and consort weren't. Although the four leads in Young Victoria and the masterpiece Victoria were born in England, Albert wasn't. Victoria was born in England, but her parents had to rush from their home in Germany so she could be. We might remember on some level that Albert wasn't from England, but he's played by English actors. We tend to think of Victoria as English because she's the Queen of Britain. So I think the portrayal of her is partly shaped by our views of her. We imagine and we see her speaking English with an English accent. But history tells us she also spoke German, especially with Albert. And when she spoke English, her accent was German. Portrayal of the Queen later in life follows the same pattern. One actress plays Queen Victoria superbly in two movies about the later periods of the Queen's life. Her Majesty Mrs. Brown, also known sometimes as simply Mrs. Brown, and Victoria and Abdul. The person who played the Elder Queen to perfection? The quintessentially British actress, Judi Dench. She was born in England, performed with the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National Theatre, and at the Old Vic. She is a 10-time BAFTA winner, and in addition to playing Queen Victoria, has played the very English Queen Elizabeth I in Shakespeare in Love, and M in the James Bond series. I'm not sure I can think of anyone who more thoroughly embodies Britishness. And her portrayal of Victoria, I think, does shape our understanding of that not-so-British queen. I think the screen representations of Victoria, from her wedding to her time as a widow and empress, are somewhat shaped by the British actors who play her. Now, I'd like to take us forward a bit more in time to when the royals consciously moved away from that German heritage and rebranded themselves as the Windsors. This was done during World War I. As the House of Saxe Coburg and Goethe, descended from Victoria and Albert, experienced some pushback from a nation being attacked by Germany. King George V decided to abandon all titles held under the German crown and issue this proclamation, quote, Now, therefore, we, out of our royal will 
and authority, do hereby declare and announce that as of the date of this, our royal proclamation, our house and family shall be styled and known as the house and family of Windsor, close quote. It was a time of rebranding for the royal family, and the image of the monarchy was at stake. George V proved himself during the war. He was known as a hard worker, and he was widely admired by the people of Britain and the Commonwealth. But there were some concerns about the next generation, especially the Prince of Wales. Prince Edward was known as a lover of parties and women, and his antics worried his father, the king, who said of him, quote, After I am dead, that boy will ruin himself in 12 months. End quote. Things went from worrisome to worse when the prince became involved with the married Wallace Simpson in around 1934. News of the affair was kept out of the papers for a while in England, but it spread like wildfire, wildfire elsewhere. When George V died on the 20th of January, 1936, Edward became King Edward VIII. In a sign of what was to come, photographers caught images of Edward breaking royal protocol by watching the proclamation of his accession at St. James's Palace with Wallace at his side. As the months went by, Edward expressed determination to marry Wallace Simpson, who had by this time divorced her second husband. Marrying a divorced woman conflicted with the teachings of the Church of England at the time, and the king's relationship with Simpson made him unpopular with the government. Eventually, the king was given an ultimatum, Wallace or the crown. He chose Wallace. Edward's younger brother, known as Bertie, was following a more traditional path, having settled down, gotten married, and produced two daughters. But he was reluctant to take the throne. Reportedly, he broke down in tears after his brother abdicated. One thing that plagued the new king was his stammer, which made speaking in public a nightmare. And this brings me to another of my very favorite movies, The King's Speech. In contrast to some of the more well-known royals we've looked at so far, the man who took the royal name, George VI, isn't a common focus or film or television. But the King's Speech told the story of the royals in a way that made them seem incredibly relatable. So right now, I just want to mention that as the current queen was named after her mother, both of them are known as Queen Elizabeth. So while speaking about this film, when I say Queen Elizabeth, I mean Queen Elizabeth, the wife and queen consort of King George VI, who later becomes known as the Queen Mother. Now, it actually turns out, a little bit of trivia here, that we know her as the Queen Mother for much longer than she was the Queen Consort. George VI's reign was relatively short, from December 1936 till February 1952. Queen Elizabeth survived her husband by 50 years, spending half a century as the Queen Mother. But let's go back to the reign of George VI. The story of the King's Speech is a relationship with Lionel Logue, a speech and language therapist. The movie explores a side of the king and queen we don't usually see, a personal side, highlighting a weakness that made the monarch feel he couldn't be a good leader. The personal nature of the portrayals, 
with moments where Bertie is rendered unable to respond to his brother's ridicule or his father's bullying because he can't get the words out resonated strongly with people who have had similar experiences. Many of the responses to the movie used phrases like, quote, a situation I have been in hundreds of times, quote, I sympathize with Bertie in this situation because I experienced such situations in my younger years, quote, Bertie is nearly always fluent when he is angry and cursing, so am I, quote, the film conveys a profound message of personal growth and empowerment. Quote, I felt there was real emotional honesty and depth to this portrayal. And, quote, ultimately, for me, the film was a story about friendship and courage. Colin Firth, who plays George VI, described what he learned about the experience of having a stutter. Quote, it would determine what you ordered in a restaurant. It would determine how you answer the phone. If you had a task to do that day, you'd think less about whether your task is going to be fulfilled. Your only worry about was about whether or not you could say it. That kind of experience is not unique to a monarch. That doesn't mean the movie had universal acclaim. Some objected to the way the ther- the time of the therapy was compressed and the way that the complicated portrayal of politics was made so uncomplicated in the film with characters such as Churchill, Edward VIII, and even George VI himself being flattened just a little. But overall, much of the focus of the response was on the more personal nature of the portrayals. It was fascinating to see people who appear on the news standing on the balcony at Buckingham Palace, waving to huge crowds, portrayed as sitting in a very ordinary flat in London, making small talk with decidedly unroyal characters. I think this portrayal shapes the way we see George VI and Queen Elizabeth. Rather than simply being images of the monarchy, they are people with weaknesses and insecurities and problems that feel downright ordinary. It's one of the most immediately relatable portrayal of royal family members. Here are a couple of my favorite scenes. One is the consultation at Logue's flat when his wife unexpectedly meets the queen. Now, at the same time, Logue is shown trying to hide and is in agony as he confesses to the king that, quote, I haven't told her about us. As Mrs. Logue stammers, you're, you're, Helena Bonham Carter as Queen Elizabeth elegantly explains without missing the beat, It's your majesty the first time. After that, it's ma'am, as in ham, not mom, as in palm. It's a perfect moment, and I have never loved the Queen Mother or Helen and Bottom Carter more. There's another powerful moment during the preparation for the coronation when the king is reprimanding Logue for not being educated enough to help and imagining that he will let his people down. It will be, he fears, quote, like Mad King George III, going to be Mad King George the Stammerer, end quote. The king seems to be utterly bereft, but then he turns around and Logue is sitting in the coronation chair. The king explodes in anger, demanding that Logue listen to me, and eventually shouts, because I have a voice. 
for just a moment, those words echo in Westminster Abbey. The king has a voice. Loke stands up and assures the man he insists on calling Bertie that he will make a good king. Those two moments are just a couple of my favorite scenes in a movie I am crazy about because it gives us a range of behaviors we don't usually associate with a king and queen. We see Queen Elizabeth chatting with Mrs. Logue, actually joking, quote, I'm told your husband calls my husband Bertie and my husband calls your husband Lionel. I trust you won't call me Liz. We see the King of England roll around on the floor, shout out the window, and participate in other unorthodox and decidedly unroyal activities to overcome his stammer. And we see him find his voice and with gravitas and authority announce the entry into the war and make an emotional connection to his family sitting nearby and to his people in homes across the country. The arc of the movie represents the arc of a country that is moving in what feels like an inevitable course into war. It's also the arc of a royal who becomes king against his wishes and successful against the odds. It's the arc of a couple who work together to help prepare him to lead the country in a dangerous time. And it's the arc of a man who works to overcome a challenge rather than allow it to define him completely. It's a lasting and powerful moment when the king finishes his speech Queen Elizabeth exhales with relief, and Logue says quietly, Very good, Bertie. I think this film shapes the way we view the king and queen and allows us to see them as people rather than simply as figures on the palace balcony. Those are a few of my favorite monarchs on stage and screen moments. I do think our views shape the representation of the figures, and the representation of the figures shapes our view. What do you think? What are some of your favorite royal depictions in pop culture? I would love to hear from you. Thank you, as always, for joining me as we time travel through history, meeting all those royals, rebels, and romantics, and take a look at them on stage and screen. I'd really appreciate it if you'd take a moment to subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. I would love to hear what your favorite royal portrayals are. And please think about joining our patron family. I'm planning many fun treats for this year, and there's some exciting, exclusive content coming soon. Check it out. As always, it's an honor to be shaking up history together. (music) 